Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mornings with Carmen. This is Peter Kapsner filling in again this morning for Carmen, who is away on holiday with a family vacation. And I'm sure what is warmer and less snowy, Arizona. And so Paul Perot here in studio, producer of the show, uh, we can have our obligatory weather conversation when it is appropriate. It was bone-chilling cold yesterday in yes, the Midwest. It was and here in the Twin Cities. Apparently definitely. today we've got the snow. How would I say it? How about I put apocalypse and snow in the same Snow-pocalypse? word? No, it's no. not snowpocalypse. So, so you're saying that I was I was a little, so I was overemphasizing maybe a little hyperbolic yesterday about uh, the cold, and am I doing yeah. the same thing about the snowstorm coming today? Yeah. I mean, we both seen worse snowstorms than what's being forecasted here in the Twin Cities, what, 6 to 12 inches, which I know some people kind of go, ah! Yeah, yeah. 6 to 12 inches, you know. It, the, 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 the downside, you know, we have the choice between cold or snow. and You don't have to shovel cold, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know, I think I'd rather have the snow. At least you can play in that a little bit. Well, well there's that, yeah. Well, glad to be with all of you again this morning. I know our first guest in just a moment is going to be Matthew Hawkins, our regular Friday contributor to the show. He works in the field, broadly speaking, of public theology. He's also the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And, Paul, we're going to get into what is kind of an interesting story in Major League Baseball here this last week. I, I again, don't want to use hyperbolic language, but it, it really was a, a bit of a scandal that erupted in sort of this signs-stealing uh, use of technology to, mm-hmm. to try to get a competitive edge on the opponents. And there were some World Series victories that maybe uh, emerged from some of these things, both in 2017, Houston Astros, 2018, Boston Red Sox. And uh, Matthew Hawkins is a big baseball fan, I know. So we're yeah, going to... Uh, yeah, something of one. Yeah, yeah gee, yeah. just a little, right? Yeah, when his Washington yeah. Nats won, won the World Series last year. That's all we could hear about from him. And and I'm curious, though, like, we're going to talk about the ethics and where the lines are in some of what we assume to be normative and proper behavior. And, and it even these kind of ideas came up in my ethics classes last week as we kicked off second semester here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. And one of the questions I historically ask of the students is starting with the premise that lying is always wrong. Mm-hmm. Right, Paul? I mean, we know this from the scriptures. Lying, lying is, is wrong. certainly always yeah. Wrong. And so Bearing false witness, bad. Exactly. But but then how do we understand and think about things when let's just use the example of the Holocaust and Nazi Germany, when perhaps some of the Jewish people were being hidden in the walls of different homes so that they would not be taken away to concentration mm-hmm. camps. And if the SS came to the doors of these homes and asked the question of the family of that home, do you have any Jews hiding in the walls? And if that family said No. No, was that considered wrong and we can actually tie it into the biblical story a little bit because it did happen at Jericho when the Israelites were coming to take the promised land and who do they end up in contact with Uh, some of the armies that are coming looking Mm -hmm. for the Israelite spies they get in contact with this prostitute woman Rahab who hides the spies and does say no or misdirects the the army to go a different direction Mm -hmm. so they can escape so Paul is lying always wrong what are you lying about well, so now we're into contextual situational well, ethics. Well, okay, but the ethical issue to me, and Matt Hawkins may say, Paul, you're nuts, but it's kind of, okay, 
preserving of human life, preserving of the Imago Dei, yep. is a higher moral issue than the lying. Both are problematic, but that's the higher one. And since it's, an, it's immoral to kill people unjustly, to defend them, even if you have to use a little subterfuge. <laughs> well, now we are deep into the muck <laughs> of situational ethics, and I certainly hope Matthew Hawkins, a public theologian, can help us emerge from that muck just a little bit because the science-stealing scandal is interesting, of course, for baseball, but it really does call into a greater question. How do we understand that which is right or wrong? And so we'll talk with Matthew Hawkins next here on Mornings with Carmen. So, Matt Hawkins, when you hear that uh, Washington Nationals theme song, does that still just bring great joy and life to your heart, given it, that it was it even really like four does. months ago? It, it really does. <laughs> Nets are still Nets are still the 2019 world champions. They are indeed, and perhaps they did it without the help of some illegal sign-stealing, uh, sign and, and this scandal did emerge in this last week. And so maybe before we get into some of the muck where Paul and I were sort of swimming around in and don't know our way out just yet, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what happened in this last week and the scandal that emerged? Yeah, so uh, apparently the Houston Astros have been uh, investigation for uh, in 2017. Uh, doing something the, that's called sign stealing. So the situation in baseball is that uh, catchers and uh, pitchers are always communicating with one another. Um, and uh, not, it also goes for uh, you know, line, line coaches who are trying to direct, communicate to base runners uh, if they should go or if they should steal and that kind of thing. And, but you're always trying in baseball to give your team a leg up. Uh, in in this kind of situation, baseball the margins in baseball are so minuscule. So you're trying to get some intel and uh, that might inform your strategy. And so what the Astros were basically doing was, on the one hand, a time honored tradition of trying to steal quote unquote uh, the signs of the other team, so they could detect, for example, when the pitcher was going to throw a curveball. Uh, what they did, however, was deploy uh, a number of different technologies uh, that is a little different than kind of an analog, you know, eyeballing the, the catcher. And uh, turns out they were signaling their batters uh, by, of all things, banging a trash can. <laughs> That's amazing dugout. to watch. Yes, you can see it on it's, YouTube video. So, yeah, it's, it's oh really interesting. Oh, my goodness. Yep. It's so, so the scandal is, one, on the one hand, fascinating. On the other hand, it's rather stupid. Uh, so you have, on the one hand, them even deploying cameras in the outfield. and uh, But then, like, it's tra- the information is actually transmitted uh, via, a, you know, some guy banging a bat against a, a trash can. And so uh, they got busted for it. And and in uh, with not only did they get busted, but uh, the MLB laid out some pretty significant penalties. Uh, they've suspended the Houston's Houston's manager. Um, they took draft picks away from them, and they fined the ownership. So this was uh, a pretty significant scandal that broke this week. What's your read on it? Yeah, well, it was interesting to see, to your point, I mean, A.J. Hinch, the manager of the Houston Astros, and, and Alex Cora, the manager of the Boston Red Sox, who was with the Astros but went to the Red Sox, they're mm-hmm. two of the brightest young minds in baseball, and they both were 
essentially fired this last week. And like you said, uh, major fines levied and and uh, and suspensions handed down. And I, I think, Matthew, as a person who played baseball through uh, all the way through university life as well in my life, I mean, you mentioned it. Stealing signs is sort of the time-honored tradition. And there, there's an art to it, and, right. and it was sort of an acceptable reality in baseball. It was this game cat and mouse back and forth where you would have to try to hide your signs while the other team would try to steal them. Sure. But that does yeah. then get us into this question where there's sort of this acceptable way of life that doesn't break any rules, and yet the very same thing, sign stealing, suddenly breaks the rules. And so... How do we understand this idea of sort of moral obligations that transcend time, space and situation with also the idea of it's the very same thing and suddenly it's wrong where in other forms it's right. And so now this whole thing is pretty confusing to me. So maybe kind of talk us through your thoughts about how do we understand when things are right and wrong when there's maybe a little shift in the wind and suddenly it changes again. Yeah. Well, this gets, as you know, into the heart of, of ethics, and uh, we're we're as Christians, you know, we're we're evaluating our ethical landscape based on uh, based on our ob- our moral obligations, where we think uh, our our ultimate allegiances lie, and to the extent that the world has different ideas about uh, what ought to be done, then in, in the in the scholarship realm we call it the normative arguments, uh, the oughts, the shoulds. Um, you know, when we're trying to make ethical judgment calls, uh, what are we basing that on? Right. Um, and some in the world are going to base it in, uh, in different things. Um, and, uh, Les- Leslie Newbegin is a scholar who points out the difference between the facts and values, um, in our culture. And, uh, we live in a culture that, that values, tends to value facts and, and kind of science, you know, provable data, uh, over values now. Uh, and even if in the value space, you have to decide what values, uh, trump other values, uh, like, like Paul mentioned, uh, if you have values that trump another, uh, and where do you root it in the first place? And if we root it in, in, uh, in the Bible, and then God's wisdom as revealed through his word, uh, then how do we develop conclusion? It's not, it's not always clear because we have a whole host of, uh, ethical situations that are not specifically addressed by scripture. A lot of them we, we believe can be rooted in principles we find in scripture, but you don't find sign stealing in, in, in the old Testament. I'm sorry. It's not there (laughs) or the new Testament. Yeah, you know, I've read quite a bit of Leviticus, but it seems to me maybe a proper understanding of it would include some science dealing. I'm not, not entirely sure, but but you bring right. up what's, I think, a really important point here, Matthew. And, and, and you were telling me off air about a case now where we can take this out of sort of more the mundane and, and the entertainment value of Major League Baseball, but moving into some pretty significant conversations in terms of issues in life. And so we'll take a short break here in just a moment and set up what we'll talk about when we come back. And that is the idea that medical intervention is something that I think we all sort of approve of and would agree with uh, anything from taking some ibuprofen from a headache to going into the doctor if you have a broken finger, something along these lines. But now we have the same question. When does medical intervention go too far? When is it that maybe we're using stem cell research of otherwise aborted embryos? Uh, You have a story about euthanasia that just emerged uh, over in Europe as well. So when do we know that it's appropriate when, and when do we know that it's too far, especially when the scriptures don't give us specific direction on these things? So lots more to come in our version of Matthew, uh, uh, baseball and bioethics mashup with Matthew Hawkins here next on Mornings with Carmen.
It is about 19 minutes after the top of the hour. We're chatting with Matthew Hawkins, who joins us regularly on Friday mornings about different ethical dimensions and dilemmas. And Matthew, you were sort of connecting the scandal in Major League Baseball around sign stealing and, and how far is too far with some of the otherwise appropriate interventions or behaviors that we have in our culture. Yeah. And, and so let's uh, go over to something like medical intervention, which we all yeah. sort of approve of and embrace on some levels, right, where we, we sure. create a technology that can help us medically. And, and ibuprofen, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it a technology, but it's a created reality that is helpful yeah. for dealing with um, muscle inflammation, for example, or perhaps uh, other technologies medicine has come up with to help sort of quality of life or to help make uh, biological sorts of decisions. But when mm-hmm. when do we go from the acceptable, uh, acceptable medical intervention and technology to something that is sort of unacceptable, things like maybe euthanasia or possibly in vitro fertilization. How do we understand these things, Matthew, when the scriptures don't give us a specific verse that says something along the lines of, thou shalt not do in vitro fertilization? Yeah. Well, I think we need to uh, obviously start with uh, scripture and uh, peruse the scriptures uh, for what what principles um, God might have us apply. Uh, and like we say, it's not always clear. It's not always precise. Uh, sometimes there is things that uh, I think Jonathan Lehman calls a zag, zig, zag, a zigzag lines uh, and not exactly straight lines. Um, but we look to principles like the Imago Dei, that all people are created in the image of human God. And so with that identity comes a certain weight and gravity um, of human dignity. And when you start crossing the ethical lines, I would argue, uh, into things that devalue uh, some human beings over other human beings, uh, that I think is a, at least a yellow flag, if not a red flag, uh, for how we approach our ethics. In the case of uh, in vitro fertilization, um, this is a very, a very complex situation, but uh, you essentially have uh, the creation of embryos uh, frequently uh, done in, in batches. Um, and so you have a number, you could, could be anywhere from four to eight to 12 or more, uh, embryos that are fertilized and then kept indefinitely in, in, in a freezer. And, uh, that, um, there are number of reasons that that happens in that number. Uh, number one is cost. It's extremely, the procedure is very expensive. Um, and the survival rate is not always there. So, uh, you, you have multiple things, but then you have human lives just, perpetually in, in a freezer, uh, we're presuming a lot on the future. Uh, even if we have a, you know, a successful pregnancy, we're presuming a lot on uh, our, our intent and our situations to actually then implant uh, the other existing embryos later, you know, maybe years down the road. Uh, in the case with euthanasia, there's a case coming out of, out of, out of Belgium. Three doctors are uh, under trial for improperly um, assisting, uh, or putting to death, uh, a lady who was aged 38. Um, wow. the, the family says that her reason for seeking to end her life was because of a failed relationship. However, the Belgian law, wherein again, euthanasia is legal. It's supposed to be required for only serious and incurable disorders. And mm. so the family says, a breakup that makes you depressed is not serious and incurable. And yet, uh, the three doctors, uh, were apparently, um, apparently helped this, help this woman to die at age 38, just three years or four years younger than me. Um, and so the whole euthanasia thing tends to value the convenience and the economics of alive, well, happy human beings 
over human beings who are um, who are uh, in pain, uh, might be suffering, might be in mental distress, and so some you know we, we move to just make it okay for mm-hmm. us to uh, dispense with these with these folks who, in many cases, um, uh, can be say assisted by medicine and or uh, emotional therapy, uh, spiritual therapy, and that kind of thing. So I think the value of other human lives relative to one another, I think, is a is a good starting point for where we talk about these things. Yeah, that's a great example that you bring up, Matthew. And it, and uh, getting back into the in vitro fertilization conversation, too, I remember it was about a year and a half ago, I was in an evening class with uh, young pastoral ministry students, and one was a pastor in the church, and he uh, opened up and sort of told in riveting detail the process that he and his wife had gone through with in vitro yeah. fertilization. And and he was in tears on both sides of it, meaning that he was in tears for the children that were birthed through that process. And he obviously sure. loves his kids. And then he's also in tears wondering, so, but what do I do with the remaining embryos that were part of this process, as you referenced? And he, right. he was sort of torn in two about the whole thing. And I mean, would you suggest, and we just got a couple of minutes left here, it, it seems to me, I don't know what your work in the church is like, but but these are sort of the things that people are living with day after day after day, uh, these different topics. And we could mention anything uh, around environment and climate, climate change and sexuality and all of these different uh, ethical issues that are complex and difficult, and they really do end up paralyzing people. Yeah, I, I think uh, the church, when it when it's at its best, sees these kinds of things as part of their discipleship. Hmm. Um when and and I, I say this as one who has walked with friends through the in vitro fertilization thing before and during, and once you are in that situation, um, number one, uh, you you have a couple who is emotionally invested in the situation, uh, unlike really a lot of other things that we can imagine, uh, and so we have to not kind of inoculate ourselves um, to these kinds of issues long before we find ourselves in the midst of it, right? Yeah. Uh, because once they're in it, number one, uh, you you want you and sympathetic are we? I mean, we we had difficult uh, we had a difficult time getting uh, having successful pregnancies ourselves. And uh, you're so enmeshed in that and, and the desire is so strong that you, it's really difficult to kind of pull someone out uh, with ethical arguments. Uh, but also then, like your, your, your friend may have uh, heard, pe- people, you're, when you enter the IVF situation, you're basically entering a gauntlet of ethical decisions that you, you can't be prepared for. Uh, they, it's like kind of like turn, turning a corner and not being able to turn back. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're third, it's complicated, but you've seen it. Uh, you kind of get into the situation where you're, you're, you make a decision and you turn the corner and all of a sudden you have a different ethical situation than you had before, but you, there's, you're already that far in kind of the gauntlet. You can't go back. Um, and so I think the best thing churches can do is talk about this stuff and see what the biblical principles are and have some kind of, you know, a programmatic, uh, uh, you know, adult education situation where, where you're talking through these and, and kind of seeding these ideas um, amidst your congregation. At the same time, communicating about it, knowing that people in your congregation uh, are, are in these kinds of situations or have gone through them. Um, so there's ought, there ought, there's ought to, ought to be a grace that, that 
couples our ethic, ethical conversations. Yeah, I think that's well said, Matthew. I think about all the pastors that go through seminary, and you and I have been through those that kind of training to be equipped and empowered to really help people walk through those processes, uh, I think is a great invitation on the road ahead. So one last question, uh, circling back to baseball before I let you run. If, uh, <laughs> if Dave Martinez, the, the manager of the Washington Nationals, was caught and known to be part of this sign-stealing scandal <laughs> and that allowed your Nationals to win the World Series, would you uh-huh. support vacating the title in 2019, Matthew? I'd be content uh, with an asterisk. (laughs) That's fair enough. I think that's great. Well, thanks for joining us here on Mornings (laughs) with Carmen. Appreciate your your insight on some of these uh, difficult issues of the day. Thanks, thanks, Peter. Always happy to join you. We'll take a short break here, have some bottom-of-the-hour news, and when we come back for the second half of this first hour, I'll be joined by good friend Gary Stratton, and we're going to talk about the journey of the two halves of life that so many men sort of experience, uh, first starting from the age of 1 to 45 and then 45 to the end of life, and you have some great insight to help empower and equip us on that journey. So, Paul, on the lighter side of things here, of course, it's mid-January, and so we do talk often about the weather and snow and how cold it is, and a pretty interesting headline yeah, you put in front of Yeah, we talk about weather when it's in season. Yeah, we <laughs> well spotted. And see that there's an interesting headline coming out of Canada this morning. Uh, an annual snowball fight at a Canada college was postponed due to, you guessed it, too much snow. <laughs> this, is, this is sort of like canceling dessert because you have too much dessert. I don't understand how this works, but it says a snowstorm forced the University of British Columbia to delay its campus-wide icy fight. The battle was rescheduled and 3,000 people had participated in this fight last year. Paul, can you cancel a snowball fight because of too much snow? Well, if you can't get out in the snow, I guess you can't fight. <laughs> I suppose not. I wonder how much snow is falling up there. You said 6 to 12 inches, though, here later today. Is that yeah, what I understand? Starting like that, uh, yeah, and a little less. Basically, the Twin Cities, I think, is going to get the worst of it. Okay. Any of our other listening audiences getting impacted uh, by this here later today? Well, Duluth will, uh, Fargo, Sioux Falls, yeah. Well, hopefully there's not too much snow for you to get out this weekend if you're listening to one of these areas this morning to get out and have a proper snowball fight. Up next is Gary Stratton. We'll talk a little bit about the two halves of life and the journey of men as they walk it out for a lifetime. There's no perfect formula for bringing a teenager to maturity, but there are three ingredients that'll give you a good head start. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. First, Unconditional love lets them know that there's nothing they can do to make you love them more, and there's nothing they can do to make you love them less. Second, grace gives them room to fail, and then encouragement to learn from their mistakes. And third, truth is the correcting influence that balances their actions with what's right and wrong. Living out the truth also means that consequences come when they step over the line. Love, grace, and truth. Take those three, Flood your home and relationships with them. It's the foundation for raising healthy, godly, and mature young adults. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. You know, Gary Stratton, I want to say that I heard that song come on the radio when I was driving around somewhere in Scotland. And even overseas, when I hear that song, it makes me think of you with a smile. I love it. 
<laughs> well, I'm glad it does, Peter. Thanks so much. It's so good to talk to you this morning. Yeah, it's fun to reconnect like this. I know we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the two halves of life and the idea that there really is this journey. And you've been reading some books around uh, David Brooks and Richard Rohr that describe a, a first half of life journey for men and a second half of life journey as well. And the invitations that seem to be intrinsic or inherent to both of those journeys. And think about you and I meeting 17 years ago. We were sort of at the tail end of that first half of life and now squarely, obviously, in the second half of life here. I would love for you to just get us started by outlining that very idea of these two mountains or the first half, the second half of life. What are we talking about here? Well, this idea of the first and second half of life goes back at least, I mean, it probably goes back ancient, but to James Hollis, uh, who was a psychologist back in the early 20th century, that has been picked up by others, by Richard Rohr, David Brooks, and the the Christian elements of just recognizing it's there and seeing that these ideas are in Scripture, that we just have this tendency to to live, you know, my language would be a external journey and an internal journey. And in the first half of life, what David Brooks calls the first mountain, we're much more focused on that external journey about getting what we want. Um, and our culture just, especially today, tells us that's what you need. It's that the first half of life is getting an identity separate from your parents, cultivating your talents, building a secure in ego, uh, trying to succeed in life, to Richard Rohr's words, to create a box that, you know, will protect your life in. And then something happens. Mm. Um, sometimes it happens through an encounter with God sometime, early in life. Sometimes it happens uh, through great parenting or being in a very strong community early in life. But normally it doesn't happen until later in life that we get knocked off that first mountain. Sometimes it's because we just can't succeed. Like mm. the things we set out to do, we can't reach. Sometimes because we get to the top and realize, is that all there is? Uh, and other times we face some really terrible things in our life, cancers or divorces or deaths of children or loss of jobs that kind of knock us down into the valley and make us look back at that first mountain and go, why was I so obsessed with that? Mm. And I began to realize I need to climb this, what Brooks calls the second mountain, what I'd kind of probably call the internal journey. Uh, but the question is really about who I am or in Rohr's language, how do I fill this box that I built with meaning? And that meaning is almost always found in connection to something bigger than yourself, normally connecting with God and in service to others, something that isn't self-centered the way the first half of life is. I think that's well spotted. I think about that, Gary, just in, in real sort of visceral terms for my own life. It was not actually even long after we met that uh, I was starting the journey in the PhD program and doing that sort of first half of life, building my program, building my brand, whatever it is, you know, stars on the rise, all of those sorts of things. And I remember feeling a little unsettled about that and, and that maybe life shouldn't be all about me. And so I did a dangerous thing, which is I prayed about it, which uh, is oh, no, no, never no, a great option, right? Never yeah. do that. <laughs> so I did. And I want to say it was just a couple of months later that I uh, started getting really sick and didn't know what it was. And uh, it's a longer story for a different time. But uh, as you know, as part of the story, I was uh, diagnosed for a period of time with Lou Gehrig's disease and ALS. And, and uh, it turned out to be a false diagnosis, but that took a long time to play out and sort of was confronted in those moments with what Rohr calls a crisis of limitation that tends to happen between the ages of 35 and 45, which is what you've referenced here, where you realize, oh my word, I'm not going to live forever. I am probably going to be limited in what my dreams and goals are. And so if I keep trying to falsely climb this mountain of success and building this box, uh, I'm going to end up sort of foolish at the end of my life. And that happens to men, doesn't it? Where they don't sort of embrace the crisis of limitation as it comes on and, and from that crisis move into a different way of life. Oh, yes. You know, I just think of this moment of uh, oh, the Netflix series, uh, 
Modern Love, where it's the one where uh, Tina Fey is in it, and her husband has always been the life of the party, always been the actor, kind of on the edge, never really inviting her in. And she's just about ready to give up and to quit. And he finally, in this wonderful moment, says, you're right. I'm about five years away from being pathetic. Mm. And that's normally what it takes for men. We are so <laughs> we are so hanging on to our external identity based on what we how we perform and uh, how successful we are in compare. It's always in comparison to other people, uh, and we just don't become deep people. And I think for the most part, especially if they face motherhood, women tend to hit it a lot earlier in our life than mm -hmm. men do. But men, it normally we we are dragged in the second half of life, kicking and screaming. Yeah, that's, I think that's really well said. I know that I've talked with my wife, Hallie, about this quite a bit. And just even being sort of reduced down in the way uh, a pregnancy might and, and the birth and the process of all that, it does bring up some of these questions oftentimes, not always, but earlier for women than it does for men. And before we get into some of the second half of life uh, invitations we're talking about here, Gary, our, I think about the way we raise young men in our culture from the ages, you know, 15, 16, 17, even earlier sometimes. Uh, is there any way around this idea of sort of the invitation that you do need to sort of spread your wings and test your limits uh, in order to have a bit of a contrast for the second half of life? Or how do we think about preparing for the second half in the midst of the first half? Well, here's the strange thing about developmental theory, and that is that we're not capable of hearing uh, appeals to development that are more than one step ahead of where we're at. Hmm. So there, there's kind of the challenge, um, because you can teach these things too soon, uh, and they become... And they just bounce off uh, people. At the same time, if you don't teach them soon enough, they, they start thinking that their life is on a different trajectory than it really is. So I think the key thing is is planting the seeds that this isn't all there is to life, that about your internal journey is the most important thing. Uh, it is possible to to do a first half, a second half of life journey first, and then do a first half of life. It's not un, it's not common, but it is possible. So I think as parents to be you know getting our students, our our children involved in service, doing things that aren't just for themselves, and not always evaluate something about what's in it for me, what goes on my resume or my college application. Uh, those are the things we can do, and keep pointing towards what I call the deep blue ocean that's out there of being lost in the love of God and able to give our lives away freely to others. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, and Gary, do you think it's fair uh, that then by the time you get sort of to your mid-30s and mid-40s as a male, that those are the times when some form of limitation, some form of reality can begin to wake you up to a different invitation? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just pretty much always the same things. I mean, there, there's the up and outers, the ones that actually get what they want and realize it's, it's not fulfilling. I don't like who I am and I don't like none of the, none of the joy that I thought I'd have here uh, has come. Sometimes it's these horrible things that happen to us, but it's being responsive to them. I think for men, especially it's good when they get to the end of themselves. Mm. I remember Sue and I never learned to pray together. We always wanted to, and we'd like do our perfunctory praise together. We never really learned to pray together until I was thoroughly in the second half of life. And I literally could not pray on my own. I had to lean on my wife to mm. be able to pray. And uh, we would just take these long walks and uh, I would listen to her and then slowly, sometimes I would be able to, to enter in and to talk and to process what was going on. Uh, having someone that you can process this with, of course, is crucial, whether it's a spouse or a counselor or a spiritual director. Uh, but it is possible 
to make headway on this earlier than later. Hmm. Great stuff. That's uh, Gary Stratton speaking with us here this morning on Mornings with Carmen. He is the University Professor of Spiritual Formation and Cultural Engagement at Johnson University in Tennessee. And Gary, when we come back from a short break, we'd love to then explore a little bit more this idea of the second half of life. And as we move into sort of the ages of 45 plus, what are the invitations in which we can engage that may look different than the invitations of this world, but really do bring authentic meaning and hope? Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, subbing for Carmen for the day, who is in decidedly warmer Arizona than what we find ourselves here in Minneapolis. And we're talking with Gary Stratton, regular contributor to the program, about just different dimensions of the entirety of the journey of life, especially facing men, something about the first and the second half of life. And Gary, you and I were chatting a little bit during the break there, too, about the idea that the invitation to descend into the second half of life, the second mountain, uh, and, and really is characterized by the walking downhill as opposed to building something uphill uh there's we really are faced with cultural tides that want to keep us trying to build and build and build right oh it's in the best interest of capitalism that Mm. we stay in the first half of life stay obsessed with ourselves and improving ourselves and uh, finding more things to make ourselves happy or accomplishing more things to make ourselves happy i mean all the the self-help books and the uh this time of year the get in good shape again advertisements (laughs) and and none of those things are wrong like there's nothing wrong with this first half of life stuff there's nothing wrong with building a structure there's nothing wrong with having a healthy body or building a strong career it's just that in the end, those things don't produce joy. They might produce little moments of happiness, but this deep abiding joy, Jesus, it only comes from when we give our lives away. Mm. That's when we find it. Well, and would you say, uh, suggest, Gary, that, again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with retirement, but if we're not careful, even the idea of retirement persists uh, of something from the first half of life where it's still about me and what I'm going to get and what's going to make me comfortable and, and the luxury that I might have. Yeah, and there's a lot of anxiety today because, I mean, uh, debt and the uh, I mean, it's nice the stock market's doing well, but the cost of living is <laughs> skyrocketing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the cost of med- for medical care when you're older. I mean, there's good reasons to be afraid of the future. There's good reasons to want to have uh, a good nest say, to be able to retire with. But I don't know very many retired people who are actually happy. And the it's the ones that didn't really retire. They're the ones that refired who actually used it as a second half of life moment to be able to go give their lives away in service to different organizations or their church. They're the ones that are rocking it in, mm. uh, in retirement. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was talking with my father last night over dinner. Uh, we were out to eat, and he was. we were talking about this kind of concept, and he said, you know, I found that he's 76 years old now, and he's continuing to be active in different ministry situations. And he said, you know, I find, Peter, that the journey is one from self-absorption to selflessness over the course of life, that where you find meaning in the second half of life is, as you said, to give it away, to remember and reflect on the fact that you're in a much bigger story, that life really is a bit of a vapor. And if we're not anchored in something that's gone on long before, before and long after, we really end up in sort of these places or can risk being in places of sort of bitterness and, and helplessness and hopelessness. No, and I mean, it is a, it's a growing epidemic among those that are older that retirement becomes, in essence, the 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 entire first mountain is all about getting to retirement and get there and realize this isn't that special or I've saved all my money and now I'm not healthy enough to enjoy all the things I planned on doing. Uh, it's a it's a very different way of looking at life and it's a different way of relating to God. Mm. I think that's 
you know, if you really look at it, the Sermon on the Mount, in some degree, is a statement of the difference between first and second half of life, where Jesus keeps saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he says, not the first one isn't right. It's that there's something much deeper than following the rules. There's this deep, principled, relational, mysterious encounter with God that transforms us not just to not kill people, but to but to, but to actually love even our enemies. Mm. That that kind of transformation is what needs to take place to really grow in spiritual maturity. And I fear right now that our churches are very focused on first half of the life issues uh, because culture is, and we're good missiologists, we tend to craft our entire preaching series around how to get what you want in the first half of life. And that's not necessarily a bad evangelistic strategy to start there, but most churches don't ever move beyond that. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. So I, I think, Gary, about if somebody was listening today, and let's say they're 50-ish years old or so, and still, you know, working in a successful career and still have quite a bit of life ahead of them, but is thinking, gosh, I've never really thought about this invitation to begin to descend into something different. Uh, what would you recommend? Are there some just sort of first steps? I mean, obviously prayer would be one of those things, but uh, how do you navigate this sort of journey where you begin to transition from one half to the next? Uh, you know, I've never met anybody, and the research would say there never is anybody that can really make this transition without uh, creating some space for solitude, uh, whether that solitude is one of the papers that you're very close to a friend or uh, or even a small group of friends or your spouse, but where there's time to think and sit and reflect and read. Uh, normally kids are moving out of the, out of the nest as you're really seriously getting in the first half of life. It, you have the opportunity to really invest in the second half of life uh, instead of just spending more time binge watching things or whatever. <laughs> um, I think that's where the real rubber meets the road thing to reorient your life about uh, getting that, Normally, it's best to do it early in the morning, but to do some setting prayer, to get a spiritual director or to or to, to finally see the therapist you always thought I wanted to see or mm. to just spend some time talking with your pastor um, where you can really begin to explore the, the inner life. And most of us have neglected those things. Uh, we know they're important and we put them off someday. I'll get to that. But my gosh, while you're raising kids, who has a free margin moment? Uh, this is the time to grab it. Mm, I love that. And, and Gary, uh, when I think about just ex embracing the invitation of selflessness, in some ways it could sound like this, oh, gritted teeth, I've got to live a life that I don't actually want to care about anymore. But there really is this beautiful invitation in God's kingdom for those who decide to begin to let go of things and open their hands and become selfless. And I think about the picture again, Roar presents this in his text a little bit, of somebody who walks that journey for a decade or two. They sort of become that grandfatherly figure who is peaceful, who cries easily, who when you're in the room with them, there's just sort of a sense of, hey, all will be well and all manner of things will be well. They, they just represent physically something of, of God's peaceful kingdom. No, I agree. Dallas Wood would say, you know, you're in the second half of life when there's when you've eliminated all hurry. Hmm. And I remember reading uh, Mere Christianity for the first time my freshman year of college, and one of the when C.S. Lewis was talking about what a spiritually mature person looks like, I read his whole thing. And then he had this line that I remembered forever, which was, uh, they will usually seem to have a lot of time on their hands. You'll wonder where it comes from. Hmm. And I thought, what on earth are you talking about? And as I stopping and starting get truly into the second half of life, I begin to realize that's true. You become other centered. And so it's not really that you have more time. It's just when you're when you're with other people, you're really truly focused on them yeah. and not on yourself. 
Yeah, I think that's well spotted. It was a great invitation, uh, Gary. As we wrap things up here, I'm going to try to test your selflessness here for a minute, if I could. And that would be given <laughs> given what I understand, and you told me off air is the weather down in Tennessee. Um, I'm wondering if you and Sue would be willing to do a house swap with Hallie and me and just sort of test that second half of life selflessness that you have. I think we could do it. The other day it was 87 degrees warmer here than it was in the Twin Cities, so we'll just have to we'll just have to do that. You're killing I'm me, not, Gary. I'm not confident my wife will come, but I'm. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, thanks for taking the time. This is great stuff. Uh, if people want to see any more of the work that you've been doing, is there a place you can direct them to go to to read more about this? Yeah, you can just go to GaryDavidStratton.com. That'll do it. I love it. Have a great weekend ahead. Love to see you and uh, take care, Gary. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, Peter. We'll take a break here and wrap up our first hour of the show, and then we'll preview what's coming up here next in Hour 2 on Mornings with Carmen. Pretty interesting stuff with Gary Stratton there, Paul Pro. I mean, I know you and I combined our age, I think, is about 227. So it's, rel- uh, it's relatively, a that, I yeah. mean, maybe a little bit, but it is uh, sort of some relevant thinking, right, about mm-hmm. how do we begin to navigate life and what sort of steps do you take to start saying, yeah, it's important to keep doing what we're doing, but what does it mean to begin opening up the hands and giving things away? Yeah, it, it, it is something that, okay, I'm a little ahead of you. Or maybe a little, years. just a touch. Just yeah. a little ahead of you. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's to that point like, okay, I'm coming to the end of my high potential, but how can I help others move to a higher level? So Yeah, and it's really interesting to move from that place of self-absorption to selflessness because it does feel like it's going to be a gritted teeth thing. But all of a sudden, there are these things that begin to greet you that are lovely and beautiful and wonderful within God's kingdom that bring an authentic sense of peace that the greatest job success may never bring. Exactly. I don't have anything more to add to that, really. <laughs> Fair. Maybe I was just monologuing there yeah, for a go second. go ahead, yeah. No, I love it. And it, I, I think the thing that I appreciated most, and hopefully you did as you're listening this morning about what Gary had to say, is this idea that I try to emphasize really regularly here in the program. And that's that in the midst of a life that tends to emphasize here in American culture that the life is about you and be what you want to be and try your best to become what you need to become. The, the, the true story, as it were, is the idea that we're part of a much bigger story of God's ever-unfolding redemption, part of a kingdom that knows no end. And because that tomb is empty, that glorious moment of that Easter Sunday, even death itself has been beaten. So even though we die, yet we live. It is an eternal life to which we are called. And that is what we try to anchor ourselves every morning here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.